Thank you uh, for this day that you've given us. It is a, another beautiful, beautiful day. It's another beautiful opportunity to get to know you more, to, to learn from your word, to, to apply it to our lives, to grow. It's another opportunity to love one another. So thank you. Thank you again for each and every day that you give us. It is a, a privilege uh, that we take for granted. It is a responsibility that is often neglected, that we are alive today for a purpose, for a reason. And uh, may we be all constantly aware of that. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would uh, uh, open up your word, your, our ears to hear your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would uh, drill it into us and that it would not just simply be head knowledge or, oh yeah, that's interesting, or I already knew this, but Lord, may it be truth that uh, leads us to action. And um, I thank you so much again for this opportunity. In uh, Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, I would like you to go ahead and turn with me uh, to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in your Old Testament. You can find it on page 553 of your Bibles. Um, Now, Ecclesiastes is what we would classify under wisdom literature, and wisdom literature, literature compares and contrasts what is foolish and what is wise. And so if you are turning to page 553, you are just giving an example of something foolish because you have a different Bible than I do. You are, so my Bible says 553, but your Bibles could be something else, or if you have a digital Bible. Now, some of you, and you have to be honest, some of you actually started turning to that page, and then you started real, because I heard the little I heard the ruffling, I heard it, and then you were like, oh, wait, he's, having, he's, he's joking with us, and you stopped. So good for you on that, but you still started to, so there we go. But yes, we are going to be looking at this. This is actually a very old book, you guys, very old. Uh, it's probably written around 1,000 years prior to the birth of Jesus, so it's very old. And even though it's very old, it is still so relevant uh, for our uh, our day and age. Uh, That is what separates the Bible uh, from any other book. Uh, The Bible is a timeless book, and so it is always timely. No matter when you read it, it still speaks truth into our lives. It is still uh, something uh, uh, that is relevant to us. Uh, And for those of who may be listening or here who are kind of new to Christianity, new to this whole thing of the Bible, uh, you might have heard us us, describe that the Bible is God's word, that it was written by God, and maybe you're kind of thinking, well, wait a minute, I was reading some of the letters in the New Testament, and it was written by a guy named Paul Peter and John, James, what's, what's all the idea of God wrote it? Well, uh, if you go to 2 Timothy uh, chapter t- 3, I'm going to see if I can get there. My pages are stuck. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 16 through 17, Paul says, all scripture, you don't know what the Greek word for all is? All, yeah, there's no, yeah, all, all scripture, everything that you have in your hand, whether it's physical or digital, all scripture is inspired by God. The Greek literally reads breathed out by God uh, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God or the man and woman of God uh, may be adequate, fully equipped for every good work. 
so yes, the Bible, there's many, there are many, many authors that uh, are attributed to writing uh, books in the Bible, but God was so actively involved in such a way that everything they wrote down is exactly what God wanted to be written down. Every truth they revealed was exactly the truth that God wanted to be revealed. So yes, God wrote this book. This is a timeless book written by an eternal God, so it is always timely. So we get to examine this ancient book called Ecclesiastes. And uh, we Man, is, this is such a great book. Um, one day, hopefully, I'll be able to actually preach an entire series on it. But for our purposes today, we are going to actually examine chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, uh, the, the, the book presents a conclusion. And uh, basically, the rest of the book expands on that conclusion. How did I come to this conclusion? So we're going to look at uh, chapter 1. And, and when we look at chapter 1, we see verses uh, 1 through 3 really kind of uh, uh, serve as an introduction to uh, the passage. And so uh, it starts off, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The words of the preacher... Now, this is the, the instructions, the teachings of the preacher. We, we don't ultimately know who the author is. Some will say, well, it's the preacher himself who's writing this. Um, more than likely, it could be both like a preacher and then another individual who's taking the instructions, the teachings of this preacher and assembling it for us to listen to. But that's not where the unfortunate uh, controversy regarding this book rests. It really rests with who is the preacher, Who is he? The Hebrew word that they use there is uh, kohelet. Now, um, in Hebrew, uh, it's not impossible to translate Hebrew, but there are some words that are just a little bit tricky to nail down. This is one of those words. It comes from the Hebrew root word, which means an assembly, a a called-out assembly. The Greek equivalent would be ekklesia, and that's the same word that's used for when, when it's translated for the church, it's a called out assembly. A Kohelet uh, is really the, the speaker, the teacher, the preacher in this case of that assembly. So an assembly of people, here we are, an assembly of people coming together to listen to the words of this preacher. But again, who is he? The preacher, the son of David, we're getting a little bit more specific, king in Jerusalem. Now, traditionally, the preacher has been attributed to King Solomon. And as you read Ecclesiastes, it's not a far stretch to come to that conclusion. Um, uh, there, there have been some modern scholars who have uh, debated against that and said, well, I don't think it is. But personally, I've looked at those arguments and I don't see a lot of weight to tell me otherwise. I, 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 for our purposes today, we're going to uh, see this, the preacher, as uh, King Solomon. Uh, now, King Solomon uh, was an interesting king. He wasn't a perfect king. He started off uh, with some, uh, uh, what do you call it, compromises uh, already. Uh, but he loved the Lord. He started off really loving the Lord, um, as imperfect as he was. And uh, it just kind of shows you, in, in 1 Kings chapter 3, shows us how gracious God is when God appears to Solomon in a dream and says, you ask me anything and I will give it to you. So everything's on the table. And Solomon asks, Lord, give me understanding heart. Give me wisdom. And uh, God answers that prayer and uh, gives Solomon this supernatural wisdom. He was, uh, apart from Jesus, the wisest man who ever lived. Uh, His wisdom was 
known not just around the kingdom of Israel, but all throughout the nations. In fact, the queen of Sheba uh, visited Solomon to witness his uh, wisdom. Solomon is attributed to writing 3,000 proverbs and 1,000 songs. A lot of the proverbs in our Bibles are attributed to him, and also the the Ecclesiastes, obviously, and and, uh, the Song of Songs. But God didn't just stop there. God was so pleased with his uh, request that he also blessed Solomon above and beyond that. Uh, Solomon was blessed with 40 years of peace. 40 years. No plagues, no famines, no wars, no inner conflicts within the, 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 the nation of Israel. It was just all peace. And as a result, they experienced economic prosperity. Solomon himself uh, was a very, very wealthy man. Uh, His salary was 666 talents of gold. Uh, Just to give you kind of an idea, a number to wrap your head around, um, one ounce of gold today is uh, equal to about $1,700. That's just one ounce. Uh, uh, It takes 16 ounces to make one pound of gold. One talent, just one talent, uh, is the equivalent of 75 pounds of gold. And Solomon had 666 talents of gold. And I could have done the math. Someone maybe can get on there. There you go. Joe, get, get the math on there. Uh, I, 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 yes. Uh, Caleb, cover your ears. I don't like math. Um, but anyways, it's, it's there. Just to give you a number, it's a lot. It's a lot. And that didn't include uh, his assets. He had horses, he had property, he had land, and eventually he even included taxes and fees, which that was a really uh, dumb mistake on his part. Um, go ahead. Seventy-five pounds, yeah, but you, well, you, that's a rough estimate. Yeah. So, well, hmm, what's your salary? <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. Uh, So yeah, you're kind of thinking uh, Bill Gates kind of on steroids there. But uh, in addition to that, there were three naval ships that would uh, arrive every three years filled to the brim with gold, silver, precious stones, and exotic animals. So that was just on top of everything. God richly blessed Solomon. But unfortunately, again, Solomon compromised too much and led into sin. One comp- again, that's how sin works. You compromise just a little bit, thinking you can justify it a little bit, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And eventually, Solomon's devotion to God uh, waved. In fact, uh, if, you, if you read 1 uh, Kings chapter 11, it says, well, Solomon loved many women. And uh, he had over uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. So, yeah, so you're talking about Bill Gates and Hugh Hefner kind of morphed into one. Um, and, and a lot of those marriages were, were done to kind of uh, build an alliance with other nations. And it, while it brought some prosperity to Israel, that is not what God wanted uh, Solomon to do. And he made a number of other uh, horrible decisions. And eventually God removed his uh, hand of blessing in Solomon's life. And the rest of uh, Solomon's story is very, very tragic. Now, we don't have any uh, record, uh, at least a narrative, uh, of, of Solomon repenting of his sins, except for the book of Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes kind of reads like a journal, a personal journal, not of a young king just starting out, but kind of a king on the twilight 
portion of his, of his days. You know, he's been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, and now he's learned some things, and he's calling assembly together, and he wants uh, to impart some uh, wisdom. And here he, uh, he introduces us to a conclusion. So chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. Here, verse 2, is the conclusion. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now some of you are thinking, yay, I came to a perfect time to come to church today. Yes, you did. Vanity of vanities. There's an emphasis there. It's the equivalent of saying Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's not just the king. He's the epitome of kings. He's the ultimate of kings. So here, the preacher is saying, all is not just vanity. It's the epitome of vanity. And, and, and some of your translations may actually say meaningless, uh, pointless, uh, nothingness, futility. And the reason why there's such a, a variety of, of, of translations is because uh, the word for vanity is one of those uh, Hebrew words that's a little tricky to nail down completely. It's the word hebel. Can everyone say hebel? Hebel. Uh, it, it literally means a vapor or a mist or a breath. If you give you a picture, think of a campfire and you see the smoke kind of rising up there. You see the smoke, but you can't reach out and grab that smoke and put it in your pocket. The moment you do it, it feels like you're not touching anything, right? It's just like it's not there. The, 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 you can look at the smoke and the moment you're trying to examine it, to see all the shapes, it just kind of flows away. That's smoke. It's hebel. Right? You look at the clouds, how big. I mean, we have some beautiful clouds over here. That's one of the things I love about Lapine. These huge clouds that just look so dense, you want to just reach up there and use it as a pillow. But if you were in a plane, you would fly right through those clouds as if those clouds didn't even exist. That's Hebel. What the preacher is trying to do, he's, he's not trying to offend anybody. He is not trying to stir us into this frustrating frenzy of despair and anger, he's trying to be brutally honest. The, the thing is, this world does have some beauty in it. Amen? There's beauty. There's beautiful stuff in this world. There's good things in this world. There's wonderful things. Uh, you know, even uh, 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 blessings. There's blessings. There's even valuable things in this world. But Nothing in this world, regardless of whether it's beautiful, it's good, or it's valuable, can give us what we so desperately need. So ultimately, I don't care how good it is, how amazing and blessing. I have beautiful kids, beautiful wife. Oh, blessing, blessing. It's ultimately hebel. It's vanity. I think that's a better translation. Vanity. And it's not just vanity. It's vanity of vanities. He then next uh, poses a question, and this is actually the question that leads him to this uh, conclusion. Verse 3, what advantage, literally what gain, what profit does man have in all of his work, in all of his toil, which he does, or in, in, in the Hebrew, which he continually exerts himself under the sun? He's asking a question that many philosophers for many, many years have asked and try to find the answers too. And that is, what is the point? What is the meaning of life? When all is said and done, what's left over? 
What can I take with me? What is going to satisfy me? What is going to fill me? What is going to uh, uh, bring meaning into my life? And the preacher's answer, conclusion, is Hebel. Vanity of vanities. He then starts uh, this, this, this poem, which many of you will say, this is a nasty poem. But he's making a point. Poetically, he's making a point. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes. The grammar there is a generation is continually coming and continually going. And now that's not a hard observation to see, right? Every day, babies are being born. And every day, older generations are dying. Every single day, that's happening. That's the reality. It's like it's, generations are coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. But the earth remains or it stands. It, it, it persists forever. This goes into a you know, definite contradiction to many organizations who say that, you know, humanity, oh, humanity is destroying the world's going to destroy the planet completely. And it's like, I'm sorry, we're dying left and right and the earth is still standing. It remains. It endures. Verse 5, also the sun rises and the sun sets and hastening to its place, it rises there again. The word hastening means to pant after, like <laughs> to strive after, to, to try to grasp. And <laughs> I don't know why, but this word brings up a picture in my mind, and I'm just going to go ahead and share it with you. Um, but when I was young, I grew up in Southern California in a normal neighborhood, like Leave It to Beaver. You know, you got the track homes all, and the streets, and the sidewalks, all of that. And uh, during hot days, which was a lot in, in Southern California, my brother and I, family, we would be out in either the backyard playing with the water hose or in the front yard. And all of a sudden, we would hear this beautiful bells music in the distance. And my brother and I would look at each other with great delight. And excitement, and we would rush into the house, grab all the quarters we can find, all the cash that my mom would let us have, and we would run out there for the ice cream man. And we would try to rush as fast as we can. We would pant after, hasten towards that ice cream man because we didn't want him to just leave without giving us his wonderful blessings of sugary substance. And that's the picture that I think of the sun. The sun rises and then looks in the horizon and hears, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. And the sun goes, the ice cream man. And he hastens across the horizon only to find himself setting. And then he repeats the whole process all over again. Oh, no ice cream man. But he rises, the sun rises and sets. And hastening to its place, it rises there again. Verse 6, blowing towards the south. Then turning towards the north, the wind continues swirling along. In the Hebrew, it could literally say, around and around the wind goes. And on its circular courses, the wind returns. Again, not a difficult observation to make. Verse 7, all the rivers flow into the sea, or this, you know, a great body of water, whether it's a lake or the sea. Or, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. It's the idea of precipitation, clouds, rain, snow, and it flows back in, precipitation, clouds, the whole cycle. What the preacher is, uh, is telling us is that our, the world that we live in is not stagnant. 
It's not motionless. It is constantly moving, but not in the way we would expect. So he brings up the idea of generations coming and going. That's all the happening every single day. People are born. People are dying. The earth is standing. The sun is rising and setting and rising and setting around and around. The wind is blowing around and around and around it goes. The rivers, you know, it's, it, it evaporates, becomes precipitation, clouds, and that clouds become snow and rain. It flows into rivers, flows into the sea. It evaporates, becomes clouds, and it goes and becomes snow. That cycle over and over again. The world that we live in is constantly, constantly moving, but it's never going anywhere. Basically, the picture that uh, uh, Solomon is giving us is that of a treadmill. Life is one giant treadmill. I remember very distinctly still my first experience with the treadmill. First time seeing it. I was, I think, my daughter Autumn's age. So I was really young, and my dad, and we went to YMCA, and uh, I could, you know, there was a gym there, and I was just ooing and awning at all the cool little workout equipment, and I could see all this line of all these treadmills. I'm like, what in the world is this? And there was this one guy, beat red, running as fast as he could, sweating all over, and he was just shouting, you know, to the top of his lungs, saying, eye of the tiger, it's the thrill of the fight. And I was just like, whoa, he's running so fast, but he wasn't going anywhere. I mean, he was going super fast, like dangerously fast. Like if he were to fall down, ah, you know, but running, running, running. And that's basically the picture that the, the, the preacher is telling us is we jump on the treadmill. We run as fast as we can. Fast, 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 fast. We die. We fall down, slide off that treadmill. Another person gets on that treadmill and does the exact same thing. He is not trying to offend us. He is not trying, again, to stir us into this frenzy. He's being brutally honest. That is how life is. It's this constant treadmill where nothing seems to change. He then moves forward. Verse 8, he says, all things are wearisome. It's the idea of being worn out or tiresome, troubling Man is not able to tell it. He's not able to form it in words. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear is filled with hearing. You can go to the, a, a, a great restaurant, you know, whatever, four-star, whatever they call it, however they rate it. You could literally eat the best meal of your life. And within a couple of hours, guess what? You're hungry again. Unless you go to a Chinese restaurant, it's within an hour. Or an Indian restaurant, and it's within five minutes. You know, that's, something's in there that's like a bullet train through your intestines. But anyways, you eat, but you're hungry again. You drink water because you're thirsty. You just worked out. You're thirsty. Oh, you drink some water. What happens? You get thirsty again. You're never satisfied. That's not a hard observation to make. You have individuals, have you heard those individuals who say like, oh, you know, we just, we found our forever home. Or this is our forever home. And you're like, oh, this is your forever home? And then then they're driving around other neighborhoods and they're like, oh, look, that house is on for sale. You know, oh, and it's our price range. That's our new forever home. (laughs) They're just not satisfied. I need something else. 
People, you know, oh, I worked really hard. I'm going to try to get this job, and you know, I'm going to sacrifice my family to try to achieve my goals. And then they achieve their goals, and they realize, oh, this is not really what I thought it was. It's not really satisfying me, filling me. I got to pursue something else. I got to go more, more, more. We're never satisfied. So this endless treadmill of life, nothing seems to change. Running, no matter how hard we run. Nothing seems to change. Nothing seems to satisfy. Verse 9. That which has been is, what will, is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing original. There's nothing fresh, recent under the sun. Is there anything of which one may, might say, See this? It is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. And a lot of us probably heard that phrase, that there's nothing new under the sun. This is where it comes from. There's nothing new under the sun. What this reminds us, what the preacher is reminding us is that we are not God. God is the creator. He is the originator. We are not that. We are just the created beings. And we don't create new stuff. We just simply take stuff that he's already created and we make it into something. You know, uh, the, the, the issues that we deal with in life, you'll hear people say, oh, we've never dealt with anything like we're dealing like in society right now. And that might be true, but because you're experiencing it, but the same issues you're experiencing now, many, many years ago, it's the exact same thing. I like to say there's nothing new under the sun. It just gets repackaged differently. It just gets repackaged. It's the same thing over and over again. You know, and, and, and we... I don't know, it's a sickness. We think we have new things. And people say, well, we, you know, we have technology. We have technology and advancement. I'm like, I get it. You know, we, we have smartphones, but it's still a phone. You know, <laughs> it's just a little bit more smarter, I guess. You know, many years ago when dinosaurs walked the earth, it was attached to a cable. You know, some of you remember that. And you had to dial 911 while the velociraptor was coming through, and you were going like that. Um, but it's still the same thing. It was a phone. You have explorers many, many years ago would build a wooden ship and they would float on the sea to explore new lands. Fast forward, you have still explorers, but instead they build metal ships and they, they fly in the air or they float in space trying to find strange new life and Star Trek, what is it? To boldly go where no man has gone before. There's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. This endless treadmill of life, nothing changes. Moving, 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 nothing, the scenery is always the same. Nothing seems to satisfy. Nothing is new. Again, the preacher is just being brutally honest. Verse 11, there, there is, or literally there doesn't exist, remembrance or memoriams of, of earlier things. And also of later things which will occur, they will be for them, no remembrance among those who will come later, still. I mean, how many of you remember your grandfather? Great-grandfather? How about your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather? No hand should be up, because then that would be weird. No, you don't. You might have heard of his name, but when you hear his name, no memory comes to your mind, because you've never, you didn't know him. Right? You know, we, we hear of, of individuals like, like Abraham Lincoln, we hear his name, we're familiar with how he lived his life, but I don't know him. 
personally. When I hear his name, a memory doesn't come of me sitting on Abraham Lincoln's lap. You know? My son, uh, he'll remember me. And his, my grandson or granddaughter will remember me. But great, 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 great grandson or daughter, they're, they might hear my name, but they're not going to know me. Our life is just a blip. It's Hebel. It's here and then it's gone. Some blips are a little bit brighter, but it's still a blip. And it's so, it's so sad how many people pursue trying to build an everlasting legacy that will never happen. I think of William Randolph Hearst. Some of you know his name. Some of you are like, I have no idea who that is. But he was a guy who lived many years ago. He was a, it was a newspaper tycoon, and, and he got a lot of money. And he built a castle in Northern California near on the, off the coast. And his whole, I, his whole dream was to be remembered. That everyone, man, woman, and child, would not live their life without hearing of William Randolph Hearst. Sweet home Alabama. There we go. <laughs> we remember that. But it's still vanity of vanities. But you hear his name now, and a majority of people are going, who are you talking about? This guy spent hours and hours of his life trying to make a name for himself, trying to establish an eternal legacy. And guess what? Hebel. Vanity of vanities. He's gone. So many people are still trying to do that. And it's really, really sad. Verse 12. Here the, uh, the, the preacher kind of invites us in to, to see his kind of his, his, his summarizing his search that led to this conclusion. He says, I, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind, I, 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 I dedicated my mind to seek and explore. I mean, this is seeking, completely devoted to searching out and exploring by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. And here he goes, it is a grievous task. It is a, it is a sorrowful, ugly task which God has given to men to be afflicted with. Now the word afflicted is again one of those little Hebrew words that's a little bit difficult to, to really pinpoint, but it, it has this idea of busy work. Now some people would, see, would take this and be like, I'm really offended by this. What the, pre- the preacher is shedding God in a horrible light. He's basically describing God as this substitute teacher who gives a bunch of his students busy work. Anyone have that substitute teacher? Busy work. Oh gosh, when is the, day, the bell going to ring? Oh no, here, got some more worksheets for you guys to do. That's awful for the preacher to, to talk to, about God that way. But again, you have to continue reading the rest of the book to realize that's not what the preacher's trying to get at. He's not trying to be offensive. He's not trying to shock us with his view of God. He is just trying to be honest with us. Here's the thing. Did you cause yourself to breathe in your mother's womb? 
did you will yourself to do that? Like, oh, I'm going to start breathing now. I'm going to will my heart to start pumping blood throughout all my body. No, none of us did. Did you choose to be born in this, this age? No. Who did? God. God is sovereign. He's in control. Now, now sovereign doesn't mean he's the puppet master pulling all the strings. But everything that we have, everything that we've been given, has been either given by God or allowed by God. And that's what the preacher's saying. God's given us our lives. But let's be honest. This world that we live in sometimes feels like busy work. Sometimes it's this work, and, and it is, it is, it is um, uh, sorrowful for us. It is a, it is a busy work that, that, that brings us sorrow. Now, if you look uh, f- uh, above that, it, he, he re- references uh, concerning all that is done under heaven. It's plural, so it's under the heavens. Earlier, he talked about life under the sun. Here, he says, everything that's done under the heavens. There's a purpose behind that. The heavens is the, the, the domain of God and the angels. I mean, obviously, God can be anywhere, go anywhere. He is God. But the understanding is the heavens, that's where, that's where God and the angels dwell. That's the spirit world there. Now, when you look back in Genesis chapter 1, do you see God in the heavens shouting down to Adam and Eve, hey, do you like the garden I just planned for you? You don't see that. Instead, God is dwelling with Adam and Eve. It's almost this idea of heaven and earth were one and the same. God's walking and talking with them. And then sin comes into the world, and that relationship was severed. And so now, what the preacher is, is, is being honest about, or, or telling us, revealing to us, something we all should know is that this world that we live in is a far cry from that Garden of Eden. It is a far cry. And as a result, it's a grievous task. It's a sorrowful task. It, is, it feels sometimes like busy work. He continues in verse 14, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. And behold, all is hebel. Vanity and striving after the wind. I love that word, striving. It's the idea of grasping after, chasing after the wind. If you were to go outside and you were to see someone just going, Rah, and then turn around, Rah, and, and you're like, what's going on? And they're, you know, yellow jackets hitting you. He's like, no, I'm, I'm trying to catch the wind. I almost had it that time. You'd probably think, oh man, this guy is, not all there. He's what? The elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. He's a couple of fries short of a Happy Meal. You know, that kind of, you know, that, he's that kind of person. And something's wrong. He's a little bit crazy. And that's exactly what the preacher is saying. All the pursuits that mankind pursues, trying to find meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction, is just a foolish pursuit. It's striving after the wind. See, even Sammy is, a, is sad about that. He knows. He's in there. Vanity of vanities. My diaper is vain. 
It does not hold what it contains. Never mind. I'm just going. Moving forward. It's striving after the wind. It is a foolish pursuit. How many people are pursuing that? Verse 15, he kind of elaborates, expands on this. It's just how, how horrible. It's, it's what is cro- crooked or what has been made crooked cannot be straightened. And what is lacking cannot be, be counted. Let's get a little bit political because I haven't been in trouble for a while. Uh, let's talk about the gun control thing going on. Gun regulations, rules, and all that kind of stuff. It's like, well, we need to have all these rules in place to stop the mass shootings, to stop the mass violence. It's like, I'm sorry, I don't care how many rules or regulations or you could be so detailed as far as all your laws and it's not going to stop people from wanting to kill another individual. What has been made crooked, sin, cannot be made straight. I don't care how many doctors you put into the world, disease is still going to happen. I don't care how much money you give towards organizations to try to feed the hungry, there's still going to be people who are hungry. What is crooked, what has been made crooked, cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, at this point, Someone may object to the preacher and say, wait, who, who gives you the authority to make such claims? You know, wh- who are you to, 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 to make this journey and, and, and come up with this conclusion? And, and so here in verse 16, uh, Solomon kind of gives his credentials. He said, I said to myself, behold, I have magnified. I've been built strong. I've become great and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed, it has, it has fully understood and realized a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. He's not just going to pursue the meaning of life just using wisdom. He's also going to go the opposite extreme. He's also going to, to pursue it through madness, which is this irrational way of doing things, a silly way, foolish way of doing things. But he comes back to the conclusion. I realize that this also is striving after the wind. I realize that even my pursuit was hebel. It was foolish. Trying to grasp the wind. But it's not possible. He says, because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. In other words, the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. The more you become aware of what's going on in this world, all the things that are crooked and that cannot be straightened, that can be very discouraging. It can be very discouraging, very frustrating. You try to do things, but it feels like you're just doing busy work. I want to read you a quote uh, from an ancient uh, historian. His name was uh, uh, Herodias. He was a Greek historian. He said, "Some, some say the bitterest sorrow a man can know is to aspire to do much and to do little. Not so. The bitterest sorrow a man can know 
is to aspire to do much, to do it, and then discover it was not worth doing. That's the conclusion that the preacher comes to. It's all Hebel. And it's not just Hebel, it's Hebel of Hebels. It's vanity of vanities. It is striving after the wind. Basically, life under the sun can sometimes feel like one sick joke where death is the punchline. And we think, okay, well, (laughs) if nothing is in this world can give us what we need, where's the hope? What's the solution? And that, go go to uh, chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. So this is the very end of Ecclesiastes. Final chapter. So uh, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The preacher says, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is... Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Fear God, keep his commandments. The word he uses for fear is this idea of reverential awe. It's recognizing who God is. He is holy. He is the creator. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is the master. I am not. And that reverence leads to action, it leads to devotion, it leads to, I'm going to follow God, I'm going to serve God, I'm going to keep his commandments. Because again, the preacher is not trying to offend you, he's not trying to to scare you, he's just being honest. And he's inviting the assembly, he's inviting us to be as brutally honest as well. That yes, there is beautiful things in this world. There are blessings. There are joys. But ultimately, it's all hebel. It will never be able to give us what we so desperately need. See, when in, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, God creates everything. And he declares it not just good, but very good. So good, in fact, he rests on the seventh day. Not, he doesn't do that because he was tired. The word literally Shabbat means to stop. He stopped because guess what? He was done. Everything he wanted, his, his whole blueprints was done. There was no loose ends to tie up. It was perfect. It was amazing. And Adam and Eve were placed in this garden to enjoy it. To enjoy each other. These are good things. He declared it. Good, good, good. But they recognize that ultimately their, the, 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 the source of their meaning and purpose and fulfillment was never to be in the good things that were in this world. It was to be in their relationship with God. That's where they would find their meaning, their purpose, the significance and fullness of life was in their relationship with God. And so what does the enemy do? Satan comes in in, verse, in chapter 3. He says, well, you can't trust God. You know, he's holding out on you. 
He says, uh, you know, you you don't need God. You can be like God. You can find that meaning and purpose and significance and fullness in your own self. And Adam and Eve believe the lie. They eat the fruit that they were not supposed to. And as a result, sin comes into this world. And what was originally shalom, this all-encompassing peace and goodness and prosperity, was replaced by chaos. And holiness was replaced by sin and rebellion. And our relationship with God was completely separated. And Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden with no way of going back. All of humanity, whether they know it or not, has this deep longing, this deep desire to go back to the Garden of Eden, to go back to the way things were. Because we know something's wrong. I I just, no matter what I pursue, no matter what I I receive, it's just, it's, It's just not fulfilling me. It's just not satisfying me. What's going on? What's Hebel? You were never supposed to find your meaning and purpose in the things of this world, in the pursuits of this world. Only a relationship with God. And so guess what? Jesus comes and he lives the life you and I could never live. He lived a perfect life completely glorifying to to the Father. And he willingly laid his life down. He died on the cross, taking on the judgment, the wrath that our sin rightfully deserves. And he offers us a salvation that we could never earn. And that salvation gives us what we so desperately need. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He's the one who brings us back to the Father. He's the one who we need. So many people are pursuing this meaning in all the wrong places. It's just tragic. It's absolutely tragic. But that's what makes the the gospel so good news. So Jesus has provided the way. All we need to do is just simply receive it and live it out. And only then will we actually find meaning, fulfillment, hope, significance. Because life under the sun, we've got to be brutally honest. Yes, it has good stuff in it, beautiful things. But it's messed up. It's broken. It's frustrating. It's tiresome. Sometimes it feels like busy work. Eventually, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to renew it because only he can make all things new. And when that day happens, that's, that's going to be great. But what, what was the reason? Why, why did I want to actually preach on this topic? It's, I, this has been on my heart um, for a while now. It's, it's the idea of what has happened this past year um, when people go through troubling times, and we, you've heard Jack preach about it, me preach about it. When you go through, Jack talks, calls it the pressure cooker of life. When you go through the pressure cooker of life, what is really in your heart comes up to the surface. Where your true loyalties lie come to the surface. And this past year, even now, has brought on a lot of pressure. 
as a result, you see what was already in there kind of coming up to the surface. And I have been very concerned regarding the church in America. Not just our church, but the church in America. There are so many individuals who come to the church and say, oh, I, 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 yeah, I follow Jesus, but they, they've never made a decision to follow, fully follow Jesus, to declare him Lord and master of their lives, to receive his free gift of salvation. They've just made the decision, well, if I, if I just have a little bit of church in my life, you know, just surround myself around good people and, 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 you know, get a Bible, read it occasionally, do a couple of prayers. It's what, what I'll need, you know, in addition to all this other stuff. It, it, it'll, it's what will, will satisfy me, fill me. But in reality, it's a striving after the wind. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fruitless pursuit. It is, it, you're just pursuing religion, not a relationship. Because it's only in the relationship where you'll find meaning, significance, and purpose, and satisfaction in your life. But so many people are on that pursuit. And I don't know where you guys are. Only you guys know. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's people who are listening online. And today is that decision. You need to make that decision. Are you going to continue striving after the wind? Are you going to look like that crazy person trying to grab the wind? Because that's what it ultimately is. Are you going to find that, uh, that relationship, find everything, everything in your relationship with, with Christ? There are also um, Christians who, maybe a lot of you, who the, the, what, I'm, what I'm preaching here is not new. You've probably heard it many, many times. Oh, yes, we're supposed to have find everything in God, find everything in, yes, trust him, but you're not living it. You're not living it. And this last year just proved it. So many things were taken away and people lost it. One of the top um, purchases uh, last year, uh, just or the two, two top, there's a lot of, 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 of exp- purchases that people made last year, but the two most uh, high, uh, highest percentage of purchases last year were uh, alcohol and pornography. Two things that promise to give you what you desire. I want to be numbed by the pain I'm experiencing, so I'm going to go to these things. I want to feel some satisfaction, some fullness in life, so I'm going to go to these things. And what happens? Hebel. It's vanity. So what happens? I need more of it. I'll go more, 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 more. Barna did a, a, a recent study, and a lot of the consumers of alcohol and pornography, uh, many people who confess to know Christ, said, "Yeah, that's where where that where those people." You have people who worked really hard to try to achieve a job. Oh man, I worked so hard. I sacrificed my family hours and hours trying to get this promotion. You finally get the promotion. COVID broke out, shut everything down. You lost your job. (gasps) Oh, my life revolves around my relationships, my relationship with my neighbors, with my family and my friends. COVID came around and said, you can't see them. (gasps) And people just crumbled. Why? Because they were putting everything into Hebel. 
vanity. So I love you guys so much and, and God loves you and this is a word for you guys to hear, to really hear and take to heart. He wants the best for you. He wa- I want the best for you guys. Don't strive after the wind. It ain't gonna get you what you want. Pursue your relationship with God. It's only in him where you're going to be able to even enjoy the stuff that this world has to offer in the right context. You'll be able to enjoy your neighbors and your friends and your family and your kids. You'll be able to enjoy them the right way because you realize they're not the ultimate in my life. God is. So that's my prayer for you guys. And um, hey, we're going to be done a little bit early. But let's go ahead and pray. Father, um, we're so sorry that we get distracted by all the glitz and glamour that this world has to offer. Ultimately, Lord, even though it looks shiny, it looks appealing, it looks promising, it's all hebel. It's vanity. And if we try to pursue those things apart from you, it is striving after the wind. Father, we, we ask that this word would just be constantly in our minds. That all is vanity, ultimately. As good and beautiful as things are, it is ultimately vanity. But you, serving you, following you, is not in vain. It is everything. And so, Lord, for those who've never made a decision to really follow you, to, to receive your free gift of salvation, may they make that decision today. May they not wait any longer. And for those brothers and sisters who are following you, but they're also trying to pursue the hebel in this life, may they recognize their foolish pursuit and turn to you. Lord, your word in, in the book of Hebrews says, we as Christians are not like those who shrink back and are easily destroyed. But Lord, the only reason that happens is because of our relationship with you. Because of us walking in step with your spirit, going by living our life in your power, not our own. So Lord, again, we thank you for this word. We, we ask that you would do what you do best and change our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.